The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome and good afternoon. Welcome. You are listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you and join with the Leslie Marshall family as we bring you the best, the latest, and the greatest. Um, if you want to join the conversation, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. What a week it has been. We are on our third day of the Supreme Court hearings with President Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. Tomorrow is the Trump Care vote, um, although we've seen a a new tweet from House Freedom Caucus saying that they are still, it looks like about 25 members of the Freedom Caucus are saying that they will vote against the bill. And today another hearing for the Labor Secretary. So never a slow day here in Washington, D.C. But I wanted to slow the conversation down and bring in two really amazing dedicated doctors and women who are really front and center in the uh, reproductive rights and justice movement in their own ways. Um, And the reason I wanted to use that backdrop is we're having this conversation about Trump care. And we're talking about these 24 million people who will be affected. If you listen to the show yesterday, we had um, one of the health policy experts from Cap On. But I think we forget who these cuts hurt disproportionately. Um, and most of the people who will be the or there's the greatest um, possibility for harm are women, whether we're talking about our seniors or young women or the lack of access. Um, And we are, as a country, still by far in a way, not really where we need to be when you think about our status on issues like infant mortality and maternal mortality. And we are supposed to be this great shining city country on a hill. And how do we live up to those true promises? So I have two guests joining me today, Dr. Joya Crea Perry. She is the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. You can find her on Twitter at Doc, D-O-C-C-R-E-A-R, Perry, P-E-R-R-Y. Joya, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. Always glad to have you. And definitely, last but not least, Dr. Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. You can find her on Twitter at Dr. D-R-T-A-Y-L-O-R-O-9. Welcome, my friend. Thank you for having me, Michelle. So, you know, many people are referring to this Republican new health care bill as anti-women, um, and noticeably one of the leaders of of kind of that movement is Cecile Richards, the the president of Planned Parenthood. And I think we have a clip talking about Trump care. Can you bring that up for us, Mark? Let's go to that clip. Desperately concerned with the care plan and how it is targeting Planned Parenthood funding by cutting federal funds for any organization that provides abortions except in the case of rape, incest, and if the mother's life is in danger. Cecile Richards is the president of Planned Parenthood and is here with me now. 
uh, this seems to be aimed directly at Planned Parenthood. It is, and it's, it's directly aimed at American women. You know, one in five women in this country go to Planned Parenthood for health care. And I think what's really important, Andrea, because it hasn't been uh, explained well, we're not actually in the federal budget. What what Paul Ryan is saying is that uh, the two and a half million patients who come to Planned Parenthood each year could no longer come to us to get preventive care, cancer screenings, birth control. And for many women, we're their only health care provider. And to, to be clear, for decades now, federal money has not gone uh, I, I don't think since the Hyde Amendment. That's correct. That that's correct. Federal money has not gone for abortions. It's that's walled exactly off. Right. And they raise I, money privately. That's exactly right. Federal funding doesn't go to abortion services at Planned Parenthood or anywhere else. We operate just like every hospital in America, every other health care provider. We simply get reimbursed for these, for these services. I was just in Speaker Ryan's own district where we see thousands of patients every year. His own hometown newspaper has come out against this bill, as has apparently every organization, it seems like, uh, in America. Yeah. So, so Joya, I wanted to yep. start with you because your work really starts at the beginning of yep. this conversation, your work at the National Birth Equity Collaborative. Tell us a little bit about some of your concerns as we see uh, this bill kind of play out. You know, it's an inter interesting dichotomy we're having right now because at the same time that we are a country that's really focusing on people's individual freedoms and choice, and that's a lot of the language that you hear when mm -hmm. people talk about these new bills, that it's important that Americans have options and that they're able to have their own choices and the freedoms met. At that same moment, we're doing things that cut those opportunities, such as thinking about cutting, making Medicaid block grants, which you know if you have limited funds in a state like mine, Louisiana, where 70% of the births are covered by Medicaid, what is the plan for those mothers if you have limited resources? They're going to have to decrease um, who can be on the rolls if you have fewer um, dollars to support that. Or if you say Medicaid is no longer, as, um, that maternity coverage is no longer an essential benefit. Mm -hmm. it's, you know, how could that not be essential if 70% of the people who have babies in the state, and that's of every race, mm -hmm. right? 70% is a lot of people um, are, have Medicaid coverage. Where do those women go if we take that away? Mm. So, Dr. Taylor, how do you look at what's happening and not see it as a direct attack on women? It is a direct on, attack on women. I think I would even take it a step further and say it's a direct attack on low-income women. Mm. Um, as Cecile said in the clip there, um, you know, Planned Parenthood acts as the single access point for health care for millions of women in this country. Um, the funding that Planned Parenthood does receive from the federal government is through reimbursements for Medicaid and the Title X Family Planning Program. Both of those programs are in place to serve low-income women. And so when you think about this bill and what it's putting forth in terms of changing our health care system, um, a lot of the proposals included are really targeting low-income women, and that's extremely problematic. Mm. Um, when we look at the Medicaid program, we know that 19 million women um, are enrolled in Medicaid. 70% um, of them are of reproductive age. So um, any cuts to Medicaid, any efforts to do away with Medicaid expansion are really going to be harmful to those most vulnerable in our communities. So, Dr. Perry, you know, when we think about... Um, 
the United States, we, we don't, we, we, we seldom think of ourselves as behind the eight ball on any issue, but I think people would be surprised, particularly because of your work on the issue of maternal and infant mortality in this country. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I have the great honor and privilege of being a member of what's called the Black Mamas Matter Alliance. And we really started after a report was done outlining the fact that we are the only industrialized nation that where maternal mortality is increasing. You know, everywhere else, money comes greater, better outcomes. But here in the United States, um, for the last 15 years or so, our outcomes have been getting worse. And we are behind some some countries that really have a lot less resource than we do. So then you have to think through, well, what, how could that be? How could you live in, say, a place like New York City, where they found that um, black women had a 12 times greater risk of death and maternal within a year of having a baby than white women? How could that possibly be with so much, you know, the resource in that city? And you know, it's hard to not point to issues around not just access, but treatment when you get into the hospital. Know things about availability of um, prenatal, not just prenatal services, but how healthy you are when you're not pregnant. You know, how do you get well woman visits? And those are at the core of some of the things that are going to be taken away by this act that's being proposed. Mm. So, what are voters and our listeners supposed to do? If some of, and actually, even before we get there, what are some of the things that you're most concerned about in this bill, Dr. Taylor? And then we come back from break, because we'll have you close it out. But when we come back from break, I want to get into some of the things we can do and some of the actions. But what are you most afraid of Mm -hmm. with this bill? I think the things that I'm most concerned about um, in relation to this bill, I've already mentioned defunding Planned Parenthood, um, as well as changes to the Medicaid program. I think another aspect of this bill that's extremely problematic for women is the fact that it would restrict private insurance coverage for abortion. Mm. Um, We know that um, there is a longstanding... law that restricts um, coverage of abortion through public sources, which is extremely dreadful, and we want to do away with that. Um, This legislation would expand those prohibitions and um, tack them on to private insurance coverage. Um, I think also How would they have the ability to restrict private insurance coverage? I mean, basically what they would do is not allow any sort of cost sharing um, Mm. through women that are accessing their health coverage through the private insurance market, Um, you know, which is basically what we have set up now with this new infrastructure through the ACA. Oh, my goodness. I didn't think I heard this before. (laughs) I just got upset all over Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) we know how inconvenient that would be for women. First off, you know, it would also require these women to purchase separate abortion coverage, which is just nonsensical. Um, you know, who anticipates having an abortion? Um, so it really inconvenienced women for the fact that they do have to go out and sort of search for plans that offer abortion or that cover abortion. And then on top of that, if they don't have the luxury of finding a plan in their state that covers abortion, they will have to cover those costs out of pocket. And for women with limited incomes, that is going to be extremely harmful in terms of their economic security um, and as well as their overall health. So this is- is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We are talking all things Trump care, how it affects women. I'm in studio with Dr. Perry and Dr. Taylor. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get into what's next on Trump care. We'll be right back after this break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 8886 Leslie. 
back, welcome back. This is Michelle Jawadro on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you, and thank you so much for joining us on this afternoon. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I'm back in studio with Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, founder and president, National Birth Equity Collaborative, and Dr. Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow here at the Center for American Progress. So, Joya, I want to go to you because you were recently on a really interesting panel hosted by Fusion in New York um, and really looking at a lot of your work, but particularly around the disparities when it comes to, I believe, infant mortality in the African-American community. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it is actually really about the maternal mortality, but, you know, if mom passes, there's a high risk of baby passing as well. And it mm. was specifically a documentary um, done about black women dying in childbirth um, and about the alliance that we're forming. And, and the, you know, and the sad part is this was done under the context of having the Affordable Care Act in, in place. Mm. So even having some states having Medicaid expansion and having the protections that we currently have around, you know, um, being able to buy on the, um, the obligations to have maternity coverage on insurance and having access to abortion care and having Planned Parenthood being funded. Even in that context, we still have a four times greater risk of dying in childbirth as black women in the United States to white women. And even that, white women are still doing worse than a lot of our peer countries across the globe. And so taking that away, all of us suffer, right? All of us. This is not a, an option of saying um, we are doing so great, um, we're doing so poorly, and then if we can, we just need more choice and access to more insurance plans and everybody will be amazingly healthier. We know that even having these protections for maternity coverage, people are doing poorly. So we worry that we're going to um, having, uh, we're going backwards, you know. Yeah. Why is maternal mortality on the rise in the United States? I mean, I know you've done a lot of work on this, but according to the Centers for Disease Control, 64.8% of pregnancy-related deaths um, were caused by a number of different diseases. But, you know, you, you just don't think anymore. And then the rates are astronomical for black women, but you just don't think that this still occurs. What is the disconnect? Is it access to care? Well, in some, in some places it is, and we found, like, in places like Georgia, when you have systems where you close rural hospitals, you know, if someone has mm. to get to, take an hour to get to the hospital, that's going to, if you're hemorrhaging, that's you're not going to survive that, even if you have the best care. I mean, in other places, you know, it's really about treatment. Um, one of the things that people find is that when you come to the hospital, if you um, have chest pain, if, if you are not believed that your chest pain is real and you're not worked up to see if it's actually a heart attack, you have a risk of dying from heart attack. So we currently, um, like to, in the United States, blame the individual. So we say the reason women are dying is because they're obese or they smoke or they're having babies later in life. Um, but we have accounted for all those factors, and it still doesn't account for the disparities and the inequities in the rise. We're not four times more obese, you know. We don't mm-hmm. smoke four times as much. And so something about our system, um, letting people fall through the cracks when it comes to having prevention in the first place, access to care, decreased stress, um, uh, increases your risk of when you finally do have a baby having um, a bad outcome on the other side. We also have a lot of maternal depression that goes unaddressed. We're dismantling the health care system and the mental health care system that was already fragile in the first place. 
So, I mean, this goes back to the point that you're kind of making, um, Dr. Taylor, about the broader issues around access and health care and just how truly dangerous Trump care mm-hmm. is right now because of these effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, some of the other aspects of Trump care um, that we need to pay attention to is the fact that um, it would sort of compromise the, um, the suite of essential health benefits that are currently offered under the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, you know, Dr. Joy talked about, um, you know, mental health care. And that's right now that is a part of the package of essential health benefits under the ACA. So that is at risk for being done away with. Also, maternity care um, is at risk for being dropped. And so in the grand scheme of things, this bill um, would really harm um, the comprehensive nature of health care that we've seen um, come out of the Affordable Care Act. We know that, um, you know, we still have Americans in this country that are uninsured, Mm -hmm. but this bill has helped millions of women um, get covered with care. And so all this bill would do is sort of roll us back from the progress that we have made. So can I ask a question I have for both of you, and I can't believe our time is almost coming to the end. So I'll ask this as we start to wrap. Why is the issue of women's health still such um, a hot topic in today's conversations and dr perry we'll start with you and then jamila you could take us home yeah you know and i think what we were alluding to at the beginning of this conversation is that in this time of saying that we need more free choice and freedom when it comes to um our ability to buy insurance or to earn an income or you know that language somehow does not translate to when it comes to women's choices and bodies mm-hmm. and that disconnect you're seeing played out within their um the parties you know mm-hmm. people understanding if you believe in freedom and choice and you believe that you know people have the ability um, should try to control women's reproductive choices around birth control or around access to abortion or even um, attacking their ability to get care when they are pregnant um, to minimize the number of babies they have all those things are decreasing choice and freedom that's right right absolutely I mean one thing that I will say is um you know, a lot of the arguments around sort of rolling back access to health care, um, particularly as it relates to, you know, the Republican Party, are centered around abortion. And Trump care would be harmful to all aspects of women's care, health care. And I just want to make that. Dr. Point. Taylor, Dr. Perry, amazing women, as always. Thank you for your leadership. We'll have you back. This is Michelle Jawando, Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. And many thanks to my guests. Last segment, Dr. Perry and Dr. Taylor, as we talked all things Trump care. And what I find interesting is that in the midst of these conversations we're having about Trump care, people forgot that last summer we were right in front of the Supreme Court talking all things King v. Burwell and whether or not uh, many of the uh, premiums that were laid out in the Affordable Care Act were constitutional. 
That was held up 5-4, and the last vote on that was Chief Justice John Roberts. So fast forward a year later, uh, Justice Scalia dies early, February 2016. This is February, people, 2016. President Barack Obama still in the White House. To my knowledge, no FBI criminal investigations connecting him to anybody in Russia. But yet we saw many Senate Republicans refuse to meet with his nominee to the Supreme Court. And thus, the first time in history a nominee wasn't granted a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And President Barack Obama came and left without placing Judge Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court. So now we find ourselves day three of the Neil Gorsuch hearings. Neil Gorsuch is a judge out of the 10th Circuit um, and is Donald Trump's nominee. And today was day three of his grilling before, I wouldn't even say grilling. I would say a light olive oil vinaigrette placed (laughs) because if that is considered grilling, well, uh, he should meet my third grade math teacher. Um, I'm excited to bring into this conversation uh, two friends of the program who have been with us before, none other than Drew Courtney. He's the director of communications at the People for the American Way. And Billy Courier, he's the deputy director of legal progress here at the Center for American Progress. Guys, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And if you want to follow these gentlemen on Twitter, and I think now is a good time, especially if you want to stay up to speed with what's happening, you can check out Billy at Billy, B-I-L-L-Y-C-O-R-R-I-H-E-R, and Drew at Drew, D-R-E-W, Court. All right. So, Drew, observations, day three. What do you think? Well, I mean, I'm not sure. I feel like some of the senators have really tried to grill Neil Gorsuch, but it has been remarkable um, for all the questions that have been asked, all the different approaches to the law, all the really big issues that we really need to learn about, how little he has said over the last couple of days. That's right. I mean, it's really remarkable, his ability to tap dance away from issues. And, I mean, this is something that we see – in other nominations. Like, we've all done this before. We understand how this process goes. But I think that the the way he has just refused to answer question after question after question has been remarkable, even by the standards of a Supreme Court confirmation process. So, for instance, he refused to say whether or not he thought Griswold v. Connecticut, the case that the Constitution, that the Supreme Court said the Constitution grants privacy for married couples to choose birth control, he refused to say whether that was rightly decided. So right. Sam Alito was willing to say that was rightly decided. John Roberts was willing to say that was rightly decided. But he Neil refused Gorsuch, to say he today about Voting Rights Act if it was a racial entitlement. How about that one? <laughs> it, it's shocking. Yeah, yeah. Um, Billy, you know, I think Drew raises a, a good point that there have been, you know, some of these hearings are set up to un- better understand the judicial philosophy behind an individual. But it's also an opportunity to bring to light kind of pressing issues that continually um, find themselves before the court. And I think a few of the noticeable exchange, I think over the last few days, we're hearing a lot more about 
money and in politics in a way that we've never really heard before. And I think some of that is due because of the Citizens United decision. Um, you're hearing a lot about that. I think, you know, disabilities and, and access about kind of the standards for young people receiving a full and fair education under the Individuals with Disability Act. Um, we're hearing issues around pro-corporate governance in a way that we haven't really heard before. What are some of the things that have really jumped out to you in um, conversation with Judge Gorsuch? Well, I think that uh, Senator Whitehouse's questioning in particular on money and politics has been uh, really, um, really important. Um, he's asking important questions about the way that the Supreme Court's rulings have allowed more money in politics. Um, and this allows the wealthy and powerful campaign donors more influence in our political system. And he made the Senator Whitehouse made the great point today that, um, you know, the fact that we have all these donors that have influence in our political system right now makes it harder for Congress to act on money and politics because they're they're beholden to all this big money that the Supreme Court has allowed in through cases like uh, Citizens United. Um, and I think that's one area where the Supreme Court um, historically has been way out of line with what the American people believe. The Supreme Court apparently doesn't think that uh, money uh, and politics uh, can corrupt. They don't even think that it appears corrupt. Yeah. Um, and I think that Judge Gorsuch's record suggests that if he gets on the court, it's going to be uh, more of that kind of uh, we're going to hear more of that kind of thing from the Supreme Court. Drew, I mean, you know, people for the American way has really been in the Supreme Court, I think, battles Um how would you rank where this nomination lines up with some of the previous judicial confirmation fights? Well, I mean, in a couple different ways, I think there's a couple different answers. I mean, in terms of how extreme the that was very is, lawyerly of you, Drew. It was, by the way, yeah, yeah it was extremely. Well, I have been watching these hearings for three consecutive days. It's amazing you can get an answer out of me at all. Um, in terms of how conservative this nominee is, I mean, he's at least as conservative as any of the nominees who we've seen in you know recent memory. I think he yep. probably. I don't know. I, I, I was not around in the fight over Robert Bork, but I think he's probably, or maybe Clarence Thomas in terms of how conservative he is, although we just saw an 8-0 opinion that came down today slapping down Judge Gorsuch as putting a, 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 an incorrectly and impermissibly strict standard around uh, education standards for, for students with disabilities. In terms of the energy around it, I actually think this has also been a really big fight. You know, there was a lot of anger that's left over from the Merrick Garland hearings. And also, I think over the last two months, there's only been two months, people have really been reminded that um, Republicans have captured the White House and uh, enablers of President Trump are in Congress. But the courts are an independent third branch that is there and able to stand up to him. And I think people understand that it's really dangerous to have an administration in chaos pushing someone onto the Supreme Court who I think, you know, Donald Trump believes that he is going to rubber stamp Donald Trump's unconstitutional, illegal agenda. And I think people get that. They understand how important this is because we need the courts now more than ever to stand up for the Constitution and stand up for the law because we have a whole team in the White House that's intent in running roughshod over it. You know, Billy, you have done a number of pieces, whether looking at the state courts or federal, on just the way that there seems to be, and I'll, I'll use a term that Senator Whitehouse often uses, corporate capture um, of the judiciary. You know, it is almost, um, it's it's much more blatant 
in the state courts context. But even when you think about the Supreme Court battles, you know, there's this this great point that was made yesterday. You have $17 million, essentially, $7 million to prevent Merrick Garland from getting on the bench, $10 million to put Neil Gorsuch on the bench. You have no idea who these people are or what their agendas are, um, but you can pretty much guess it's not whatever they believed Merrick Garland would um, would care about. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, the same dark money group that's spending $10 million to push Judge Gorsuch uh, onto the court also spends a lot of money in judicial elections at the state level. Right. Um, and they've refused. Uh, they've really gone out of their way to to um, to keep their donors secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want anyone to know where this money comes from. We do know that they've received some money from the National Rifle Association only because the NRA disclosed that they gave that money um, to this group. Um but we don't know who their donors are. But judging uh, from the kind of judges that they advocate for at the state level, um, I think it's clear that they want judges on the bench who are going to rule for big business and rule against workers and consumers. Mm-hmm. Drew, you know, that kind of line of the kind of pro-corporate court, it was interesting, the pushback today um, from Senator Cruz, who, you know, I will tell you, I am constantly working on my Christianity. And when Senator Cruz speaks, it often pushes me to try a little harder. But today, um, during um, the hearing, you know, he, he, he basically tried to equate the substantive concerns about what seems to be a pro-corporate tilt when cases come before Judge Gorsuch and equate the concerns and criticisms about that with criticisms that Democrats and others and Republicans and Democrats have had with the personal attacks on the judiciary from Donald Trump. Please help me understand how he was able to even begin to make that kind of equivocation. Yeah, it's difficult for me to talk about Ted Cruz on the radio because of my (laughs) word choice, and I may say things I'm really not proud of. I mean, false equivalencies have been flying around all day. I mean, it's really amazing. This the, the the amazing way that Republicans are able to present themselves as just like dewy-eyed naifs about how the courts work, that any criticism of a Supreme Court decision just goes, it breaks their heart. And the idea that anyone would politicize a Supreme Court nomination, oh my God, golly gee whiz, they can't believe it. (laughs) And I just think that that totally belies the fact that this is the same party that lined up on an unprecedented blockade of Merrick Garland last year. And, you know, let's be clear, this is... This is the party that has been totally unrestrained in its attacks, not just on individual judges in the form of Donald Trump, which they continue to countenance, but continued attacks on um, other judicial rulings that we've seen around marriage equality, around choice. I mean, the language that we've seen coming from the right has really been appalling. And, you know, of course, it's Ted Cruz who's going to say the most infuriatingly dishonest thing in hearing. (laughs) But really, even by Ted Cruz standards, this one was really rich. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm in studio with Billy Corrier, Deputy Director of Legal Progress at Center for American Progress, and Drew Courtney, Director of Communications at the Center for American Progress. So, Billy, there there was a... um, an exchange between
between Senator Franken and uh, Judge Gorsuch around forced arbitration, um, which I think is hard. Most people may not be familiar, but but please try to kind of break down really some of the concerns around forced arbitration and how it's connected to this kind of privatization of our justice department, I mean, of our justice system. Sure. Um, well, a lot of folks aren't familiar with uh, arbitration clauses, but I guarantee that almost everyone out there has signed one at some point or, there, or at least agreed to an arbitration clause in a contract. A lot of times when you, um, you know, sign up for a new product or, you know, you get a new phone or something like that, you said it says click here if you agree with the terms and conditions, and sometimes those terms and conditions might include an arbitration clause. And basically, what those clauses say is that uh, if you have some kind of legal dispute with this company, um, then you have to go through an arbitration proceeding. And a lot of times, these arbitration proceedings are really stacked in favor of the company and against the consumer. Um, you know, they'll sometimes the uh, corporation gets to pick the arbitrator, or the person bringing the complaint has to pay the cost, that kind of thing. Um, and there were studies a few years ago that showed that um, a lot of these, um, you know, organizations that conduct arbitration uh, s systematically favor corporations over consumers mm. or corporations over employees. Um, and the Supreme Court um, in recent rulings has really expanded uh, the use of mandatory arbitration, um, and they have cut back on the ability of consumers to um, to get around these mandatory arbitration clauses to fight um, unfair practices by corporations. And we've seen it a lot in the employment context, too. Um, the court's sort of uh, using these mandatory arbitration clauses to say that employers can't challenge certain practices. And what does that mean tangibly for, you know, the everyday average American and their ability to access the courts? Well, Senator Franken mentioned the case of a veteran who, uh, while he was away at war fighting for our country, um, had his property seized by a bank. Um, and the veteran thought that <clears throat> thought it was very unfair, um, but he wasn't able to get his day in court um, because of this arbitration clause. So it really closes the courthouse doors for people who have been injured or discriminated against or mm. just ripped off uh, by a bank or some other corporation. So, Drew, we know this president, as we get ready to head to the end of this segment, um, we know this president reads Twitter. So we do. Uh, we, do. we do. We we know there's the one way to communicate with them. <laughs> it might not be a brief or, or, or a report, but it's going to be on Twitter. Uh, so what do you want to say about day three of the Gorsuch hearings, knowing that Donald Trump is going to read one of your tweets? Oh, well, I mean, what is the, Donald Trump is the one who signed on to this. Donald Trump is the one who's happy about this nominee. I mean, he's yeah. the one who knows where this nominee is coming from. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I would kind of, the, the takeaway that I would have, in addition to the fact that he's not answering questions, is that ultimately this is not a moderate nominee, and this isn't even a stealth nominee. We know where Judge Gorsuch is on all of these issues. I mean, he's had a 10-year record on the federal bench. Before that, he was in the Department of Justice, where we've gotten some, not all, but some very important documents. He's written op-eds on issues like LGBT equality. We can go through this, like, pantomime game of pretending that his mind is just, like, blissfully open, and he's never had a thought about an issue before in his life. But in fact, 
he has an established record that shows that he takes an extraordinarily conservative view of the law and that he's been willing in a repeated way, in a pattern consistently, to twist and torture the law in order to come to rulings that privilege the interests of corporations and the powerful over the rights of individual ordinary Americans. Mm. And I just think we can get lost in the legalese and the fine print of all of this, but that should come through clear as day. We know where he is on these issues. No one is going to be surprised when he starts making his rulings. And so shame on us if we let this one go. This is a lifetime seat on the Supreme Court, and I really think on this, people need to fight like hell because we've got a lot riding on this. Billy, last 30 seconds. Close us out. Uh, Well, I think Drew is absolutely right. I think one thing that I hope Donald Trump hears about today um, is that the, the just this morning the Supreme Court unanimously smacked down uh, a ruling by his Supreme Court nominee? I think that would really get under the Donald's skin. <laughs> um, but I think the fact that this court was unanimous in this disability rights case um, and and rejecting the standard articulated by Judge Gorsuch shows how out of the mainstream this nominee really is. Mm. Billy Courier, Drew Courtney, always a pleasure to have you. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. All things Supreme Court and the issues of the day. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back with Talk Media News. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. And many thanks to our uh, guests on last segment, Drew Courtney from People for the American Way and Billy Courier. You know, one thing that we didn't mention, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer yesterday really criticized Gorsuch's testimony as pitifully short on substance. But in addition, he's come out and basically shared that because of the C, uh, the FBI investigation into President Trump, that we need to slow the process down. And essentially, I mean, come on. And I think when you just think about this process, you know, I think we forget a Supreme Court appointment is for life. This isn't four years, this is 40 years. And if we don't take a minute and recognize that whoever is on the court will be making decisions that will affect every single American in this country, and why are we rushing through a process when we held open a seat for 200 plus days at the beginning of a president's last year in office, but yet we're rushing through while the current inhabitor of the White House is under a federal investigation from the FBI? I cannot overstate how damaging to the credibility of this institution, the judiciary. The only thing that really separates our country from so many others when it comes to the judiciary is the trust that people 
put into the decisions that come out from the judiciary. And there was definitely a breach last year when we weren't able to move forward. Many people looked at what was happening and that's why you saw all of that do your job because people didn't understand at the beginning of a year, this is the president, he was elected, the people did speak. They elected Barack Obama and this was a opening. So. There's a lot happening here. I'll let you know I will be here every step of the way to help us figure it all out. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. You have a great week, and I'll be back soon.